Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Welcome in, everybody. Yeah. Episode 5. Yeah. Another podcast. It's Sweet America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Friday, June 24th, 2022, people. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. I hope everybody is ready for a fun Friday edition, the FFE of the Aerator Sports Podcast. And let me just say this. I've been doing this a long time. We are never, end of June is supposed to be the slowest time of the year on the sports calendar. We are never supposed to have a show this loaded late June, yet here we are. We got so much to get into. So here is a rundown of what we're going to talk about today. We will obviously open with the 2022 NBA draft. I just got so much to talk about. You know, I, I will say, and we'll get into all the details, I actually liked most of everything that was done in the first round. There were a few picks here and there that I didn't understand, but for the most part, I loved what happened in the 2022 NBA draft. We will talk about all of that. From there, we're going to completely switch gears. And how about our buddy Arch Manning? Grandson of Arch, uh, Archie Manning, son of Cooper, nephew of Peyton and Eli. He has made his college announcement. He is going to Texas. Crazy story. Great for content. And I will tell you this. It is a fascinating thought on what Texas could be or what they might not be with him and what it means for him, his future, for Texas's future, for Steve Sarkeesian's future. Just absolutely incredible. Finally, we will wrap with our Friday staple, where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, and we'll do a little bit different today. It will be my best and worst NBA draft takes through the years, and you guys are going to kick out of some of them. First of all, I will give you the greatest take that I've ever had. It will go on my tombstone as the best take that Torres ever had in his career, but also some big ones that I missed on, including a perennial NBA All-Star. I will tell you about my Jason Tatum take of the century, my Steph Curry thoughts. So where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong to end the show with my best and worst NBA draft takes of my career and frankly of my time watching basketball. With that said though, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day in this case is the 2022 NBA draft. We all knew it was coming tonight. We all knew what was going on. And I have so many thoughts that I'm just going to dive into them. But what I would say big picture is this. If you came here for hot take Torres expecting to yell and scream and this team screwed up and this team made a mistake and this team was terrible, 
I really can't do that. I actually really like what most of these teams did, and specifically, the top six picks, I think those teams made about as good of a decision as they possibly could. Number seven is fascinating with Shaden Sharp. We'll talk about that. And then, of course, I'll hit on some of the big hits and misses from the rest of the first round. So let's get into it. Let's start at number one overall. And how about this? I'll tell you this. Your boy Torres gets an awful lot of stuff wrong. We do it at the end of every show where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. But I'll tell you this. The night of the NBA draft lottery, what did I say on this show? I said that I believed the Orlando Magic should take Paolo Bancaro number one overall. Of course, everybody else said they're going to take Jabari Smith straight through the NBA draft process. Everybody seemingly believed it was going to be Jabari Smith. And then about 24 hours before the NBA draft, all of the odds markets and betting markets seemed to indicate that Paolo Bancaro was getting leverage and and moving up draft boards and could potentially go number one overall. Adrian Wojnarowski seemingly puts out a fake report, probably to just try to help the Orlando Magic keep leverage with the pick. But in the end, after all that Jabari Smith talk, Paolo ends up going number one overall. And what I would say to that is pretty straightforward. I mean, look, I, I said it on lottery night. I said I thought he should be the pick. So selfishly, and, and, and you know, I, I, I joke about taking credit for it, but the bottom line is I can't sit here and say that I knew they were going to take Paolo Bancaro number one overall, but I thought they should. And now that they had, let's talk about it because to me, this was always the right pick specifically for the Orlando Magic. And what it really comes down to is what I talked about the night of the NBA draft lottery. The Orlando Magic are in a very precarious spot and because they got the pick, it's a different deal than if Oklahoma City or Houston teams that are rebuilding get the pick or on the opposite side, teams that are, are, are on the verge of the playoffs, like say the Cleveland Cavaliers, the San Antonio Spurs, if they had gotten the pick. Why I thought Paolo always made sense for Orlando was this. Orlando is not in rebuild mode. Orlando is an organization that has not had any real long-term success for a very long time. I talked about it the night of the NBA draft lottery, but these stats will blow your mind. Orlando has not won a playoff series since 2010. They have won a grand total of two playoff games, not two playoff series. They have won two playoff games since 2010. That is 12 years. So the Boston Celtics lost the NBA Finals, but won as many playoff games in the NBA Finals as Orlando has won it since 2010. And so I said all along, if you're Orlando, I don't believe that you can take with the number one overall pick a long-term upside guy. I think that completely eliminates Chet Holmgren, who we know will not be ready to play next year. I also didn't love the idea of Jabari Smith because Jabari has the tools. I like Jabari Smith. I like what he's about and I like what he can be, but I also think he needs to work on his game. I don't think he can really create his own shot. We'll talk a little bit more about Jabari when we get to the Houston Rockets pick, but I bring it up because to me, Paolo always made sense because Paolo was the best of both worlds. He is a guy that I believe in this draft, at least of those top three, is the most ready to step into the NBA right now and help you right away. And if you're the Orlando Magic, you need help right away. You can't sell your fan base. You can't sell whatever season ticket holders you have left on this idea of, well, you know, we got the guy we want. Give us two or three years. He could be really good in 2025. Nobody wants to hear that. They want a guy to come in now. They want a guy to help now hopefully get back into the playoffs and maybe win a couple games once you get there. 
I believe that Paulo is that guy and will be that guy, and that was why he always made sense. Look, we, t- we watched him at Duke. I don't need to get into too much of what he did at Duke, but this was a guy that was fantastic all season long, was a three-level scorer, was a guy that over the course of his freshman year at Duke, playing in some of the biggest games in college basketball, averaged 17 points, seven rebounds, 34% from three. And what I loved about Paulo was in his biggest games, he played his best. These aren't empty stats like some other guys. This was a guy that in the season opener, Madison Square Garden against Kentucky, drops 20, 22 points. Gonzaga, a game that I was at, 21 points against Chet Holmgren. He actually had bad cramps in that game. Easily probably could have gone for 30 if he played the entire game. NCAA tournament, big games, big moments, 20 points against UNC in the Final Four, 22 points against a veteran Texas Tech team in the Sweet 16. This guy is just the truth. And so credit to the Orlando Magic. I believe this was the right guy at the right moment, the right pick. Apollo at number one, I had no problem with. What I will say going forward is generally this. I don't really, when I do these kind of NBA draft recap shows, I don't go like pick by pick and this is an A and this is a C and this is a B plus. But I do think the first seven picks in this draft were absolutely fascinating. So let's get into them one by one. I promise we're not going to do it for all 30 first round picks. But number two, and we'll just rip through some of these. I love Paolo at number one because I thought he was the guy that they needed at this exact moment in Orlando. I like Chet at number two. And there's not a lot to break down. We've talked about Chet probably going to OKC from the beginning. But OKC, very much in the the beginning to middle stages of a rebuild, they are slowly starting to build this thing up. Young players, draft picks. Josh Giddy last year was a surprise lottery pick who played really well. They have Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And this is a team and an organization that drafts well, that develops well, and they are kind of on the same time frame as Chet Holmgren. They're not trying to win next year. Well, good thing is Chet Holmgren's not going to be ready next year. They're not even necessarily trying to win the year after as they continue to accumulate picks, continue to build this organization back up. And so all of a sudden, you start talking about Chet Holmgren year two, year three, year four, being a guy that's ready to go. That kind of fits perfectly with Oklahoma City. I really like this pick for Oklahoma City. I think it makes sense. I don't know that Chet Holmgren, you know, if you're making futures bets on like rookie of the year, I don't know that Chet Holmgren is your guy but really like Chet Holmgren at number two. I'll say this. I thought Houston at number three had the easiest pick in the draft. Houston was actually in a perfect spot. One, like Oklahoma City, they are in very much the beginning stages of a rebuild. Why it works out well for them is because we all deemed that this was a three-player draft, and so Houston was almost in the perfect position. Three players, you have the third pick, you don't really have a tough decision to make. You're not drafting on need. You're not drafting on, you know, positional whatever. You're trying to draft the best available player. There are three players, and so you can't really screw up the pick. Orlando might screw up the pick. Oklahoma might screw up the pick. Somebody might look up two, five, ten years from now and say, man, Oklahoma City should have taken Jabari Smith over Chet Holmgren. Well, that wasn't really your decision. You were at number three. You got to take whoever fell to you. Jabari Smith, I think, will be really good. And I know over the last couple weeks, I've talked a lot about Jabari Smith. Should he go number one? Should he not? And I do have my questions about him. I understand he's a 45, 46% three-point shooter at 6'10". We had Bruce Pearl on this show a week ago to talk about what Jabari Smith does well and doesn't do well. At the same time, while I can question if he should have gone number one overall, I can also say at number three in a major rebuild, this couldn't have gone much better for Houston. You get the guy that some people were saying was going to be number one overall. 
you have time, you can develop him at his pace, at your pace, and you might end up with the best player of the draft. So shout out to Houston. Don't think there's much to say here because, again, they were always going to take the third guy out of three. It wasn't the guy that we thought, but it's hard to criticize them because they got the guy that at the end of the day really was basically the best player available. Can't really criticize him there. Let's go to number four. And again, I swear, I'm not going pick by pick, but I, I, I think it was really interesting to me. I think all six of the first six picks, they just worked out so well for the six teams that were picking. So number one is Paolo Bancaro to Orlando. Number two is Chet Holmgren to OKC. Number three is Jabari Smith to Houston. Number four was where it got interesting because we've talked a little bit about the Sacramento Kings over the last couple weeks. I have a lot of good media friends up in Sacramento. And they, to me, were really the inflection point of this draft. And let me explain why. They are a team. You know, I talk about Orlando having no playoff success. Sacramento hasn't even been to the playoffs since 2006. And my understanding of what's going on in Sacramento is that this offseason, everybody in that building was given an edict. You guys got to make the playoffs next year. And so it's an interesting deal. Again, different from Orlando, different from Houston, different from OKC. And why the Kings were so fascinating was because they could go in a million different directions. They could trade the pick for veteran help. They could go with the best player available, which I think we all thought was going to be Jaden Ivey if that was the case. Or they could go with a guy that actually fits a need because, again, you have to win next year. You don't have time to develop a long-term player. You maybe don't even have the opportunity to take the best player available in Jaden Ivey because he kind of is redundant with your best player in De'Aaron Fox. And so Sacramento, I thought, actually smartly, and I know it's easy to criticize the Sacramento Kings. I know they've been a mess forever. But I thought they smartly drafted Keegan Murray from Iowa. He was a kid who really developed this past season, had an incredible year leading Iowa to a Big Ten title. And what I like about him is a few different things. First of all, just a really, really talented player that got so much better over the course of his freshman and sophomore year. He is a little bit older, and that does matter, and that is important. But what I like about Keegan Murray is that he was a guy, it was just so fascinating to watch him develop over the course of his two years at Iowa. Because his first year, you go back to when his first year at Iowa averaged seven points, three and a half or five rebounds per game, and really was a role player alongside the national player of the year, Luca Garza. Remember him, two-time uh, uh, follower of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. And then this year, he developed into an absolute star. 24 points per game, uh, nine rebounds per game, 40% three-point shooting. And so this is why I like this pick for Sacramento. And I swear, I'm not usually this nice where I like everybody's picks. But they have a specific need. Like I said, they're two best players. De'Aaron Fox at point guard and DeMontis Sabonis, if you may remember him, he played at Gonzaga. He is a center. The one thing they needed was kind of a, a, a foreman who could stretch the floor, who could hit some threes, who would defend, who would play a role. And that's why I like this pick. You could have gotten Jaden Ivey and we would have all patted you on the back and said you got the best player available. But instead, they get a guy that they can plug in right away. And what I really like about Keegan Murray is that he is a guy that throughout his career has played a role. He was a role player in year one which means that he will be comfortable being a role player in year one in Sacramento next year. I should say he was a role player in year one at Iowa and will be comfortable being a role player in Sacramento next year. So that's why I like this pick, because he fills a need that you have next year in a win or everybody gets fired situation. 
And over time, he could become a star because we saw him do it at Iowa. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number five, I'll just say this. <laughs> I love this pick too. Jaden Ivey took Detroit. And remember, Detroit's got a really nice young core. We actually talked about them a little bit on this show last week in the biggest questions. And I said, I think with the right pick, Detroit could kind of be like the Memphis Grizzlies, right? The Memphis Grizzlies go from the play-in game two years ago, the play-in game last year, to boom, they take off and they're the two seed in the West this year. And it's because they drafted three, four, five guys. And they didn't just hit on John Morant and Jaron Jackson at the top of the draft. They hit on Brandon Clark in the middle of the draft. They hit on Desmond Bain in the middle of the draft, late first round, early second round. And that is what Detroit has done over the last three, four years. One, took the right guy in Cade Cunningham last year. Uh, By the way, I didn't even mention, Cade Cunningham and Paolo Bancaro, back-to-back number one overall picks. They actually both visited Kentucky on the same weekend, and Kentucky almost got a commitment from both of them. Neither here nor there, we don't have to discuss that. Uh, But to go back to, to, to the Detroit Pistons, you have Cade Cunningham. He is the franchise cornerstone, and at this point, it's just putting talent around him. Well, Sadiq Bey from Villanova two years ago, really good wing player. Isaiah Stewart from Washington a few years ago, second round pick, really good role player, energy, toughness, whatever. Now, you add maybe the best player in this draft and Jaden Ivey to that core, and I am just saying, watch out, Detroit basketball, like they could be back in a hurry. I just think this kid makes so much sense. He's best off the ball. And what I will tell you about Jaden Ivey is what I've said on this podcast a few times now over the last week. I have done a complete 180 on him as a player because I believe that Matt Painter, his head coach, just had no idea how to use him this past year at Purdue. Too focused on feeding the post, too focused on getting it to the big guys, Zach Eady and Travion Williams. When you have a player like Jaden Ivey, just let him go, let him attack, and I think he is going to be great in Detroit. Number six, <laughs> you know, another one that I, I just like. I, I mean, I would be, you guys know me. I would be critical if I thought it warranted it, and we'll get into a couple picks that I didn't like. But number six, Ben Matherin from Arizona, I think out of, you know, we said it was a three-player draft, maybe a four-player draft with Jaden Ivey. I think we could look up in 10 years, and Ben Matherin is the best player in this draft. And I've told his story a few times, 
But I remember talking to somebody on the original Arizona coaching staff that recruited him. This was under Sean Miller. It was before I really knew Sean Miller. But I was talking to one of his assistants. And at this time last year, Ben Matherin could have left for the NBA and been drafted in the second round. And by the way, nobody would have blamed him for leaving after Sean Miller, the coach that recruited him, got fired. But I talked to one of the assistant coaches. They said, no, 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 no. He knows he's not ready. He wants to come back. He wants to get better. He wants to be a star. Well, what happened this year? He came back and was an absolute star for the Arizona Wildcats this past season. You look at what he did. He went from 10 points per game to 17 per game. Had some of his biggest games against some of the best opponents. Tennessee early in the season on the road. Illinois early in the season on the road. Shot 37% from three and went from a really good player to a superstar. And I think he brings that confidence and I think he brings that, that swag, that dog in him to Indiana and I think he's just a kid that I, I believe can have success right away and can have long-term upside. Two other things that I like about him. One, he's actually really young. So he just turned 19 years old. Like as an example, Chet Holmgren, who just finished his freshman year, is older than him. Ty Ty Washington, who just finished his freshman year, is more than a year older than him. And Ben Matherin just finished his, his sophomore season. So he's really young. And Indiana, for the first time in a long time, is in true rebuild mode. He's going to get lots of minutes. He's going to play right away. I think he has a chance to be really good. I'll tell you this. At some point, maybe we'll look at rookie of the year odds. But I think that he has a chance to be really special and be special right away for Indiana. Finally, we'll get to number seven. Then we'll get to some of the other picks that I liked and some of the ones that I didn't. Number seven was Shaden Sharp. And so if I'm going to take credit for where Aaron was right, Paolo Bencaro, then I got to take credit for where Aaron was wrong. And I really did think, and we talked about it on a Wednesday show, after the interviews that Shaden Sharp did over the last couple weeks, where he admitted that he decided himself not to play at Kentucky, where he didn't really have answers as to why he didn't play or whatever, I really did think Shaden Sharp could fall in this draft. And I will tell you, I spoke to at least one NBA person who said, I wouldn't touch him. I'm freaking out. I don't know what this is all about and why the information is all of a sudden changing. But apparently it didn't match the Portland Trailblazers who took Shaden Sharp at number seven. Listen, I have no massive hot take. Like I said, I, I wouldn't have blamed anybody for not drafting him. But I'm also not going to blame the Portland Trailblazers for drafting him. One, if you're that young, if you're that inexperienced, it's, pretty, it's a pretty good spot to go to, right? Damian Lillard is a veteran. Damian Lillard is a worker. Damian Lillard is going to take you under his wing and teach you how to be a professional. You could do a lot worse if you're Shaden Sharp, and from the Trailblazers' perspective, you could do a lot worse than taking a kid that would potentially have been the number one overall pick next year. And that was why I never really felt like Shaden Sharp was going to fall that far. I thought he might fall to 10, 11, somewhere in there. I never thought he was going to fall too far, because at the end of the day, you're drafting a kid that could have potentially been the number one pick next year, but instead you're drafting him a year ahead of schedule. Three-level score, crazy athleticism. No, he doesn't have a lot of game experience. Yes, his motor has been in question. And yes, I wouldn't have blamed teams for passing on him. I don't know that I would have taken him at number seven, but it's hard for me to blame the Portland Trailblazers for making that same decision. Really quickly, let's rip through some of the other picks in the first round that I really liked and a few that I really didn't. There really, again, weren't very many that I didn't like. One, Oklahoma City. I, I just love what Oklahoma City's doing and what they're all about. So Oklahoma City, in the first round, in addition to taking Chet Holmgren, they took the kid Jalen Williams 
really fast-rising prospect from Santa Clara, super athletic, long wing. Um, it reminds me of like a Kevin Porter Jr. kind of player, super athletic, is kind of a lead guard at 6'5", 6'6", and he's another one. I'm not sitting here saying that, you know, I, I know I've said there's nine guys that I think could be the best player in this draft. I don't think he's going to be the best player in this draft, but could you look up and as a Shea Gilgis Alexander body type at six foot five, six foot six, could he be averaging 21, seven and seven in two years, three, maybe not two years, but three, four, five years? I think so. And again, he's another player. He played in the WCC at Santa Clara. It's going to be a step up. He's going to OKC. He is on their timeline much like Chet Holmgren. You don't need him to be great right away. You don't need him to play this second. Instead, you let him develop, maybe spend some time in the G League, maybe spend some time getting NBA reps. I really do like his draft spot at number 20, at number, uh, excuse me, in the middle of the first round. A couple other picks I like, you know, I mentioned Jaden Ivey earlier with Detroit. And I love the fact that they got Jalen Duran later, later in the round. He was picked by Charlotte, traded to Detroit, along with Kemba Walker. And why I like the Jalen Duran pick is pretty straightforward. Listen, there's this notion I think we've talked about on this show. There's this notion like, oh, you can't take a big guy early in the draft anymore, especially big guys that can't shoot. I think that is a load of you know what. Now look, in a perfect world, do you want to have five shooters on the floor at all times? Of course. Even the Golden State Warriors don't have five shooters on the floor at all times. Gary Payton Jr. is not a shooter. Uh, Kevon Looney's not a shooter. Draymond Green doesn't appear to be a shooter anymore. So this notion that you have to have guys that can all shoot, I don't buy it. And I still believe that in the NBA right now at this second, size, <laughs> yeah, forgive me for saying this, but size still does matter, right? Like there's this notion that centers are going to be obsolete like the Tyrannosaurus Rex in three years, like that nobody's going to play a center. Well, I watched the NBA playoffs. Bam Adebayo's a big guy who played big minutes, defends the rim, rebounds, protects the basket, you still need those guys. DeAndre Ayton is going to get a ton of money this year because he has all of those skills. skills. Giannis is an MVP, and I'm not saying Jalen Duren's going to be Giannis, but Giannis is an MVP who mostly still plays within 15 feet from the basket. The three-point shot still isn't totally there. Kavon Looney got reps in the NBA Finals. Robert Williams got reps in the NBA Finals. So the idea that you can't have big guys that can't shoot, I just think is ridiculous. I love what Detroit did with Jaden Ivey and with, uh, with this kid Jalen Duran from the Memphis Tigers in the first round. Let's keep it going. Other picks that I liked. I'll say this, really like what the Spurs did. Two guys that I think are going to develop really nicely in that organization. Jeremy Sohan from, uh, from Baylor, super athletic wing, really tough. Another guy that the shot isn't there yet, the scoring isn't there yet, but he defends his butt off. Great developmental organization. I love what the Spurs did with that pick. And I love what they did with their second pick too, Malachi Branham from Ohio State. He was a guy that was maybe a little bit underrated coming into college. Didn't know a lot about him. I think he was about a top 30 prospect. And then you turn on these games, you sit there and say, who is that dude? Six foot six, super athletic, um, great mid-range jumper, great three-point jumper. Didn't really have a huge season because Ohio State didn't really have incredible moments. He's playing alongside EJ Liddell, another uh, guy that was projected to go very high in this draft. EJ Liddell's the veteran. He's the older player. And so Malachi Branham, 
kind of was just off everybody's radar. Then late in the year, he completely blows up. And I think he has a chance to be really, really good in the NBA. Really like that pick from San Antonio. Really like the Atlanta Hawks adding A.J. Griffin. We talked about A.J. Griffin. Did think the spot that he went to mattered. I've talked about, is he just a three-point shooter? Is he a a, a three-level scorer? We only saw the three-point shooting at Duke. But Atlanta has a guy named Trey Young who's going to do most of the creating, most of the dishing, and the one thing they need is guys that can step out and hit threes. A.J. Griffin can do that. Let's keep going with the picks that I like. Um, Christian Brown with the Denver Nuggets. I love Christian Brown as the white kid from Kansas. Super athletic, jumps out of the gym. I'm just going to say it. I don't think he gets enough credit for the athlete that he is because he's a white dude, but jumps out of the gym, defends his butt off, and I think you put him alongside Jamal Murray. You say, Jamal Murray, you go get your buckets. This guy's going to defend the other team's best player. This kid's going to run the floor. He's going to shoot threes. Christian Brown, in that, with that team, with Nikola Jokic, the reigning MVP, has a chance to be really good. And the last one, you know I couldn't go without saying it. You know I got to say it. My boy, Dale Terry, Chicago Bulls. I told you, the second he entered the NBA draft, I said, this guy is going to rise up draft boards, and he is going to be a guy that people fall in love with when he goes through the draft process. And that's exactly what happened. Was a kid that this year at Arizona was mostly a role player, but six foot seven, defended, created for others. And then late in the season, when his number was called, when Kirk Kreese got injured, and Arizona needed a star, this kid stepped up and was great in their final few games of the season. We've talked about it a ton, but it is worth noting again that when you look at his game log, again, there weren't a ton of big games early in the season. Then you go late. He was like basically their best player. He was a guy who had 17-7-7 against um, against UCLA in the Pac-12 championship game. 17-6-3 with two three-pointers made against Houston in the Sweet 16. I love Dalen Terry. couple picks that I'm kind of lukewarm on. By the way, I do like Ty Ty Washington late in the first round. I think if Ty Ty Washington is healthy, uh, we're talking about a, a top 15 pick at worst. Unfortunately, it just did not happen for him. And I'll say this too, one last thing. I'll give credit to a kid named Mar- Marjan Beauchamp, uh, number 24 overall. He was a kid that during COVID, he got caught up in all this whatever, decides to go the pro route out of high school, goes to some weird academy and trains for a year, nobody hears from him, doesn't go as planned, has to go to a JUCO, ends up with the G League Ignite program this year, and really refines his game and develops his game. I'm happy to see it. It took about a year or two longer than expected, but credit to him, played himself into the first round. Milwaukee Bucks is a perfect situation. I'll say this, in terms of picks that I didn't like, especially in the first round, there's really only one that comes to mind. You know, listen, I'll say this. I do think Ochai Abaji was probably picked a little bit ahead of schedule at 14 overall. He's an older player. I don't know how much better he can get, but he's going to the Cleveland Cavaliers. He's going to the Cleveland Cavaliers. They're a, a, a playoff team already or on the cusp of a playoff spot. They have Evan Mobley. They have good young players. They just need him to play a role, so I don't hate that pick. I just think he was probably a little drafted ahead of schedule. Other than that, the only pick that I really have any kind of question about David Roddy, number 23 to the Philadelphia 76ers. Not criticizing the kid, not saying he can't play, but he's like an undersized power forward, not super athletic. He can step out and hit threes. I didn't really think he was an NBA player when I watched him this year. Obviously, he entered the draft ahead of schedule. He knew that he was going to get picked. Surprised to see him uh, picked number 23 overall by the Philadelphia 76ers.
Really quickly before we get to Arch Manning, just a couple second round picks that stand out. And listen, I, you know, we've gone long enough. We don't need to break down second round picks that may or may not have an impact. But I do think this speaks to, I thought this was a pretty good draft overall. I really thought that there, the top one to two to three maybe wasn't quite as good as it's been in years past. But I thought that group that was like 4 to 10, 4 to 11, 5 to 12, whatever you want to call it, was really good. I thought there were some good picks, obviously, as I just discussed in the middle to the end of the first round. And I think we got some hoopers in the second round. So just a couple guys that stand out from the second round. One, Andrew Nemhard, first pick of the second round. Indiana Pacers really do think he is a guy... At Gonzaga, he thrived, ball in his hands. Do think he can be successful in the NBA level. Backup point guard, remember, when you're in the second round, you're just looking for guys that can make a roster and have an impact, and I do think he is potentially one of those guys. Going down the list uh, to continue everything in the second round, Christian Coloco, you know, Toronto Raptors drafted him. Toronto has a great track record of developing Big guys, international guys. Masai Ujiri, of course, is from overseas. He's the GM, led them to a championship. They are another great organization with development. And uh, Christian Coloco going to the, uh, uh, excuse me, the Toronto Raptors. Really do like that. Jalen Williams to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Listen, you don't need me to tell you what Oklahoma City does because I talked about it twice already. But Jalen Williams, Arkansas Razorbacks, listen, again, Second round, you're looking for effort, you're looking for energy, you're looking for guys that can play a role, and that is exactly what Jalen Williams did the last two years for the Arkansas Razorbacks, helping them to back-to-back Elite Eights. He's going to defend, he's going to rebound, he's going to contest shots. He is a guy that is going to find a role in the NBA, and if he stays with Oklahoma City, I'm telling you, give it two, three years. You're going to be watching an Oklahoma City playoff game, and there is going to be Jalen Williams taking charges uh, and doing what Jalen Williams does. A couple other picks in the second round. You know, Max Christie to the Lakers, I think, makes sense. Max Christie's a guy that if he develops, he has, he, he has first-round talent. I would have liked to see him come back. But going to the Lakers, again, play a role, learn from those veterans. He is a guy that can contribute on that team going forward. Kennedy Chandler to the drafted by the San Antonio Spurs. How about this? Kind of a cool story. Kennedy Chandler, absolute superstar for Tennessee. Drafted by the Spurs, traded to his hometown Memphis Grizzlies. So Kennedy Chandler gets to go back, play in his hometown. Kennedy Chandler's a stud, man. And the one thing, and I think we talked about it the other day on this podcast, I've done so much draft stuff, I don't remember what I said on this show and radio interviews and whatever, but Kennedy Chandler is just, he he's a very talented player that is unfortunately very, very, very short. He's from a different era. If this was 15 years ago, I think he's a top 10 pick. If he's 6'3 instead of 6 feet, I think he's a top 10 pick. But he goes in the second round, and again, there's not a lot of small point guards in the NBA, but you talk about a guy that two, three, four, five years down the road could have an impact. Kennedy Chandler is that guy. And the other thing I would say, Memphis Grizzlies have done an incredible job drafting, as we just talked about earlier in the show, not just John Moran and Jaron Jackson, but remember, they got Brandon Clark out of Gonzaga late in the first round. They got Desmond Bain from TCU, who had big success with them. I do like the Kennedy Chandler pick to the Memphis Grizzlies. Finally, the last one that I would say, and you know I'm going there. That's right, my UConn Huskies, baby, Tyrese Martin. So I'm not a huge Golden State Warriors guy. Drafted by the Golden State Warriors, I was this close to being a Golden State guy. He gets traded to Atlanta. But the bottom line with Tyrese Martin that's important to know 
again, I'll say it for the fifth time here in the last two minutes. Second round, you're looking for role players. Tyrese Martin starred in his role at UConn. 15 points per game, eight rebounds per game as a guard, defended the other team's best player, and again, we talked about Atlanta a minute ago when it came to A.J. Griffin. You have your star in Trey Young. You have guys that can now shoot threes with Cam Reddish, with A.J. Griffin. You need guys that are going to defend, that are going to rebound, that are going to be tough. Tyrese Martin from UConn, the final guy that I absolutely love in the second round. All right, this is what I want to do. I do want to take a quick break. I do want to come back and hit on uh, Arch Manning. Not sure if you heard. Peyton Manning has a nephew named Arch who committed on on Thursday. We got a lot to talk about. We got a lot to break down. I will be right back. A lot of Arch Manning, and then we'll get to where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. All right, everybody. I am back. Going to be back. Going to be back. I do want to switch gears and talk a little college football. Let me say this. Let me talk big picture existential stuff. Let me go deep on you right now here on the Air Torres pod. So there are sometimes, a lot of times, June historically, for what I do, is the single slowest month in sports. There's just, you know, you, you talk college sports, June is just, there's nothing. I mean, there's nothing. College hoops is done, transfer portals done, rosters are set, but it's not really that time yet where we really dive full speed ahead into college football. But every once in a while, the content gods, to their credit, do give me some good content here in June, which is the slowest month, and that is exactly what happened on Thursday. Why Thursday? Well, it's pretty straightforward. It is because on Thursday, the number one high school football player in the class of 2023, who I would argue is maybe the most touted high school football player that I have ever seen, made his college decision. That player, of course, is Arch Manning, grandson of Archie Manning, son of Cooper Manning, nephew of Eli and Peyton Manning, you may have heard of him, Arch Manning made his college decision. He was down to three schools, Georgia, Alabama, and Texas, and on Thursday, drumroll please, what college did he pick? Arch Manning, the number one high school player in America, grandson of Archie, son of Cooper, nephew of Eli and Peyton, chose the University of Texas. The eyes of Texas are upon us. That is right. How about Steve Sarkeesian? How about the Texas Longhorns? Insert your own Texas is back commentary here. With that said, like this is legitimately fascinating. Like sometimes a kid commits and it's just whatever, right? Like Trevor Lawrence committing to Clemson. That's cool. But Clemson won a national championship. You see why. But the confluence of Arch Manning, Steve Sarkeesian, and Texas, it is fascinating, and there's so much to discuss, so let's break it all down, soup to nuts, let's just get into it, okay? So first of all, what I would say is, as weird as it sounded, and I think a lot of people, if you weren't following the recruitment closely, if you're just a, a fan of whatever, Kentucky, or USC, or Oklahoma, and you knew your school wasn't really in the mix, you might see Texas, and you might be shocked, but if you really followed this recruitment, it actually was kind of trending that way. And it actually, in many ways, does make a lot of sense. First of all, as I said, the final three, about a month ago, Arch kind of cut his list to three, took three official visits, Alabama, Georgia, and Texas. Well, Alabama, shortly after Arch Manning cut his list to three, 
They actually picked up a commitment from another quarterback in the class of 2023, Eli Holstein. At that point, it felt like Alabama, they're not officially off the list, but they're pretty much not really in the running. Arch still took his official visit, but even Alabama fans were like, we're happy with Eli Holstein. We like him. We're ready to move forward without with him. If we don't get Arch Manning, it's not the end of the world. Georgia, Georgia's an interesting one because, you know, about a week or so ago, I think somebody asked me in the, the Wednesday mailbag show, what would Arch Manning mean to Georgia? And what I said was, I, I do think he could be weirdly a game changer for Georgia in that he would give them that elite quarterback that could make up for the deficiencies if there is a given year where Georgia doesn't have an elite defense, where Georgia's run game isn't as good, where their O-line isn't as good. But I also kind of said, I'd be careful if I was Arch Manning. The one hole in Kirby Smart's resume, and you can't criticize him too much, he's just won a national championship in case you didn't hear, is that he hasn't developed quarterbacks. Obviously, uh, you know, Jacob Beeson leaves, ends up going to the NFL. Jake Fromm never really got better in the program. And I think the guy you have to look at is Justin Fields. Like, Justin Fields is an incredible quarterback, but he looked a lot different playing under Kirby Smart than he did playing under Ryan Day. And I understand that since Justin Fields left, they brought in Todd Munkin, they kind of modernized the offense, whatever. I still think it is a legitimately big risk that you're taking because even if you go back and look at Stetson Bennett's numbers from last year, Georgia never really opened up the offense. In the regular season, they were just destroying everybody and Stetson Bennett didn't have to throw the ball. And in the national championship, I think he had a few good, good you know, series, good quarters, whatever. But it wasn't like he put Georgia on his back. So, so the point I'm trying to get to with Arch, I always kind of question if Georgia really made sense for him. Texas, though, I understand the idea. They're coming off a 5-7 and seven season. They're Texas. They have struggled for a very long time. They have underachieved for a very long time. They are coming off a year where they had zero NFL draft picks. I could understand the argument against Texas. And, and if you want to make that argument, I'm not going to fight it. But what I would also say is, one, once he got to three, this is where it seemed to be going. But also there are things about Texas that make sense as to why you would pick Texas if you're Arch Manning. One, he's got a, a, a multi-year relationship with Steve Sarkeesian dating back to Sark's days as the offensive coordinator at Alabama. It's a three, four-year relationship. This isn't, we're going to get into the NIL in a minute. This isn't just a head coach throwing a bag of cash and saying, come play for me. Legitimate relationship with Steve Sarkeesian. Um, beyond that, you know, I understand Texas was bad, but like you can criticize Sark for a lot of things. Game day, what has he really done, da 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 He's a great developer of quarterbacks, and we know the guys that have worked under him. He turned Mac Jones into one of the great quarterbacks statistically for at least one season in the history of college football. Even Texas last year, as bad as they were, the offense, despite multiple quarterbacks, despite injuries, despite all sorts of stuff, the offense was pretty good throughout the year. And so you have a four-year relationship with Sark. You have a situation where he's one of the great quarterback developers in college football. I'd add the timeline actually works out very well. And I'll say this, I was genuinely stunned at how many people do not seem to understand the concept of eligibility clocks when it comes to college football players. Why do I bring it up? Obviously, Quinn Ewers, who was the number one quarterback in the class of 2021, went to Ohio State, transferred to Texas. He will be technically probably a redshirt freshman this year because he didn't play last year. But he is draft eligible two years from now. And so the timeline makes sense. Arch Manning comes in, day one, he doesn't have to be the starter. He can sit behind another guy in Quinn Ewers 
learn the system, learn the offense, all that good stuff. And if Quinn Ewers is as good as we think he is, then Arch Manning is going to take that job from him because Quinn Ewers, after three years, is going to go to the NFL. And if Quinn Ewers isn't as good as we think he is, well, guess what? It's going to be time to move along because Arch Manning is going to come in. So I was stunned by people that were like, well, why is he going there? Quinn Ewers will still be there. It's like most guys don't want the pressure of going in and having to win the job on day one. Trevor Lawrence, as I, I just referenced a minute ago, he eventually took the job from Kelly Bryant. But never forget, Tua, as great as he was, sat behind Jalen Hurts for a year. Uh, Bryce Young sat behind Mac Jones for a year. So I don't think most kids, they want to play early, but I don't think they want the pressure of going somewhere where they have to start day one. And so Quinn Ewers will be eligible for one year. He'll be a junior when Arch gets there. And then the idea is Quinn Ewers goes to the NFL and Arch takes over. And so when you factor in all of that stuff, it makes perfect sense as to why Arch Manning chose Texas. One last thought before we get into what it all means in the bigger picture. Well, two things really. One, can we stop with the, well, it must have been NIL related. Like, please stop with the NIL stuff. Listen, if you don't like Texas, I get it. It's okay. I'm not offended. I'm not a Texas fan. I don't care. But Arch Manning's family has more money than the people who run Live Golf, okay? I don't think Arch Manning is waiting for the bag from Steve Sarkeesian. He's going there because Steve Sarkeesian's a heck of a quarterback's coach. He has a four-year relationship with him. And there is one other factor that I do think is important here. I just mentioned, could be a starter by 2024 uh, and really could, you would think, take off as a junior in 2025. Well, what is 2025? Let's just think about that. Let's do some mental math. 2025 is probably the first year that Texas plays in the SEC. To me, that matters. I, 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 listen, I, uh, surprise, surprise, I wasn't in Steve Sarkeesian's recruiting meetings with Arch, but my guess is he said, look, you're not only going to be the face of Texas football, but you're very likely going to be the starter when we go into the SEC. And so whether that's a, who knows what the SEC is going to look like at that point, but whether it's a conference championship, whether it's a playoff appearance, who knows if we have an expanded playoff by then, you're going to be the face of the program. And if you elevate this program at the time that we go into the SEC, that's like legendary build you a statue kind of stuff. And so we could criticize Texas, but it makes perfect sense. Now, with that said, let's get into the bigger part of this. What does it mean for Texas? What's realistic? What's not? This is where it gets really fascinating to me. I think it, the, the, the commitment itself makes sense, but this is the part where it gets absolutely fascinating to me. First of all, for Texas, you can't spin it any other way. This is a huge, mega recruiting win. It's always a big win when you get a five-star QB to commit, but when you get the most notable QB with the most notable name from the most notable family in football history, that is huge. You, cannot, you can try to tear down Texas or rip them today. If I'm a Texas fan, I'm sitting there saying, screw you, we got Arch, let's go, let's rock, right? And I think the benefits that come with this are obviously, we all know what they are. When you get a commitment from a five-star quarterback, what does that mean? It usually means, in general, that other good players are going to want to play with him. And so now Arch Manning becomes your lead recruiter, again, the most prominent quarterback recruit in years from the most prominent football family, has now committed to Texas and he is now recruiting on your behalf. Elite 11 camp is next week. I don't know if he's going to be there. I actually think he might not be there. But everywhere he goes from now on, he's wearing that Texas hat. Whenever he goes to these camps with other elite players, he can get on the phone. He can text. He can talk to kids when, when the coaching staff can't. 
And we all know how important this, uh, you know, getting a five-star recruit is for a college football program at the quarterback position and what it means. What I would also say is, if you want to say, so, so it's, it, there's no doubt that it's a positive. But what I would also say is, it does make things interesting from Texas's perspective. Because I do think a couple things. One, people are asking me, well, like, like, well will he end up, he's going to end up in the transfer portal. It's like, forget the transfer portal. You know what the most interesting thing that I think about this commitment is? What happens if Texas isn't good this year? I mean, you talk about how intense his recruitment was now. Imagine if Texas goes 4-8 and eight or 5-7 and seven like they did last year. Now, I don't think they will. But imagine if Texas goes 5-7 and seven this year. Imagine if in December he sees that and he knows that Steve Sarkeesian is either going to get fired or will be very much on the hot seat going into his freshman year. That is the most interesting element of this. What if Texas isn't good this year? You commit now, it helps the recruiting class. And I do think in many ways... I do think in many ways this probably, I saw actually Dennis Dodd from CBS say this, and I think he's right. I do think that this right here probably gets Steve Sarkeesian to 2023, right? Even if Texas is terrible this year, you're not going to fire Sark when you have the most transformative recruit, or at least the biggest name recruit in high school football committed to you for next year. So, so this probably buys Sark at least until 2023, but that's the most interesting element to me. If Texas goes 8-4 and four this year, okay, cool, whatever. But if Texas goes 4-8, and eight, if Texas goes 5-7, and seven, and Arch sits there and says, this head coach might only have a year when I get there. If we don't win next year, he might be out. Is it at all possible that he reopens his recruitment? And so to me, that's what the most interesting part of this whole conversation is. It's not why he committed. It's, the, it's what it means for Texas in the big picture. Because I believe this decision will both make or break the Steve Sarkeesian era and I believe that this decision will very much impact just Texas football over the next five to seven years as they transition into the SEC. If this thing works out, oh, it's big. If it doesn't, I mean, it is catastrophic on a level that we don't even understand. Because just think about what this means. Texas now, as I just said, if you really think about it, they have gotten commitments from the number one quarterback in the class of 2021, Quinn Ewers, who was obviously originally 2022, reclassified, goes to Ohio State, transfers to Texas. He's supposed to be transformative in his own right. Now on top of it, you got the number one quarterback in the class of 2023. And this is why it's so interesting. If you can't build a national title contender centered around two five-star number one recruits in the class especially in the NIL era where you have more NIL money to spend than anyone, I don't know if it will ever happen for Texas. And so to me, this is just fascinating because this is either going to be the moment in time that Steve Sarkeesian, for all the criticism, really does elevate this program, really does take them from five and seven. This year, they're good. They start to build around Quinn Ewers. And then 2024, 2025, that's when they take off under Arch. Or if it doesn't go well, then we know what's going to happen from there. Sark might be fired, Arch might transfer, and this might be a PR disaster that even the likes of Texas hasn't seen. That's why it's so interesting to me. It is going to go one of two extreme directions. Extreme. 
Again, if you cannot build a national championship caliber roster around two five-star number one ranked quarterbacks, one in the class of 2021, that's really kind of a 2022 kid, and then 2023, it might never happen for Texas. So absolutely fascinating. Congratulations to Arch Manning. I hope he enjoyed today and he enjoyed the moment. We can make fun of Texas, but when you the day that you pick what college you're going to or what the next step in your life is, if you have a job offer or something, it's a really cool day. I'm happy, and I will also say from the content perspective, it doesn't get much bigger than Arch Manning committing to Texas. All right, this is what I want to do. I do want to take a quick break. I do want to come back. And when I come back, we'll wrap with America's favorite segment, where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. We'll go heavy on the NBA draft, a historic where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, going through some of my best and worst NBA draft takes. I'll be right back. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. Great show today, by the way. A lot of good stuff. NBA draft, Arch Manning, and now it's time to wrap with our Friday staple where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. If you listen to this show at all, you already know the deal. You know what we're going to hit on here. Uh, We're going to do a little bit of a different twist today, but first of all, you know the deal. Uh, This segment derived from Colin Cowherd, buddy of mine. He does every single week where Colin was right, where Colin was wrong, and I decided to bring it to this show. The idea being that over the course of a week, a month, in today's case, multiple years, I throw out a lot of opinions. I do it on this podcast. I do it on radio. I do it on social media, and nobody loves patting themselves on the back and telling you how great they are more than your boy Taurus. But here's the thing. I get a lot of stuff wrong too, and I got to own up to it. And so we do where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. Fun way to end every Friday show and fun way to hold myself accountable. And what we're going to do on today's show is a little bit different. What we are going to do today is rather than kind of span multiple sports and different stories and all that good stuff, Instead, what we are going to do is focus all things NBA draft, not just on Thursday night, but really over the course of my career and my life as an NBA fan and, of course, as a college basketball fan talking NBA draft. So we're going to go through some of my best NBA draft takes through the years, and we are going to go through some of my worst NBA draft takes for years. Let's get into it where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, where Aaron was right. So in terms of not only NBA draft takes, but I am talking all-time takes. When we talk about the best takes that Aaron Torres has ever had, the 2017 NBA draft may have been my peak. That's right, five years ago I hit my peak. It's all been downhill since then. But in 2017, first of all, I went on Chris Broussard's podcast. This is still available on YouTube, by the way. And I said that I thought Jason Tatum should be the number one pick in the draft. I loved him. I thought he'd be a superstar. I know he struggled in the finals. But I said Jason Tatum was the best player in the draft when no one else was saying that. So that's only part of where Aaron was right, because where Aaron was really right, and this is where it's all-time stuff, I said from the moment that I, I saw him play in high school, straight through the night of the NBA draft, I do not understand why Markel Fultz is the number one player in the draft. You go back to his time at Washington, a few different things. First of all, it was this weird thing where a couple of the NBA draft guys said, he is the best player. Everybody in the media follows suit. And if you didn't follow suit, oh, you don't know what you're talking about or oh, whatever. And I called those people at the time Markel Markel Fultz truthers. 
I said, look, he's a fine player. But this idea that he is the universal, no doubt about it, unquestionable number one, that's insane and idiotic. And by the way, again, you can go back and find those tweets. You go back to Markel Fultz's time at Washington. He didn't help them win. He didn't elevate the program. He didn't make others better. And his stats were mostly empty. I remember he played against Lonzo Ball, who was the number two pick in that year's draft, at Washington when he played at Washington in a Saturday night game. I remember watching it. Lonzo was awesome. All over the floor, passing, dribbling, shooting, scoring, helping UCLA out to a 20-25, 30-point lead. And then at the end of the game, when it was way out of hand, Markel Fultz filled the box score, finished with like 25-6-6. Six, and six. And the next day I wake up and I, and I hear everybody saying, Markel Fultz played Lonzo Ball to a draw. And I was like, no, he didn't. He was terrible. He filled the stat sheet late. And if you watched him at Washington, that was basically all he did all season. Then he got hurt late. He didn't play. Um, goes number one overall. And I just said at the time, I don't get it. I don't see it. This is one where there's, there's some stuff I say and where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. You just got to trust me on. There's no stats to back it up. There's no tweets to back it up. There's no podcast to back it up. But this is one. You can search on social media. You can go back to my tweets from 2017. I never understood why Markel Fultz was the projected number one pick in that draft. Where Aaron was right, that was an all-timer. Never bought the Markel Fultz hype. Where Aaron was wrong, same NBA draft, 14th overall. There was this guy named uh, Donovan Mitchell. You may have heard of him. He was actually 13th overall, but you get the point. And going into that NBA draft, Donovan Mitchell was one of the last players that decided at the last minute to stay in the NBA draft. He wanted a first-round guarantee. He wasn't sure. And there is now a famous story that we didn't know at the time about how he went to some workout in New York City, and I think Chris Paul was there, and maybe Carmelo was there, and I can't remember everybody who was there at the time, but he went to that workout, and he killed it. And Chris Paul said to him, kid, you're ready for our league. Come join us. You're ready. And that was what gave him confidence to declare. But in the lead-up prior to that workout, I remember going on Nick Coffey's radio show. Donovan Mitchell wanted a first-round guarantee, and I remember talking to Nick about it and saying, I'll be honest. I don't know if I see it. I don't know if I believe he's a definitive first-round pick, and even if he is, I don't know what you're getting out of him. If I was Donovan Mitchell, I would come back to college for another year. Oh, yeah, Donovan Mitchell was right. Aaron Torres was wrong. Now, I know things are going on with the Utah Jazz organization right now. They are trying to figure out what his future is in Utah, what Rudy Gobert's future is in Utah, but I don't think there's any doubt that Donovan Mitchell is one of the rising stars in the NBA already a three-time All-Star, has played some Team USA basketball, averaged 25 points per game this year. I can't lie, did not really see this coming, thought he'd be a fine NBA player, did not see him turning into this. Where Aaron was right. Let's go back to the 2020 NBA draft, and in that draft, I said a couple things. What I said was that I believed, among many things, and by the way, this is on podcast, you can go back and listen to this, I believe that there were two guys that could absolutely positively turn into busts that could go early in the draft. We're going to get to one of them in a minute that I was dead wrong on, but one of them that I think I was right on was James Wiseman. Now, to be clear, James Wiseman has been dealing with injuries. He did have a knee injury late last year, did not play at all this year, but I would also say this. He had a meniscus tear in that knee, and I understand that I've never played NBA basketball, but I've had two separate meniscus tears, and it is not a year-plus recovery, and I think it speaks to who James Wiseman is and has been his entire career. 
dating back to his days in high school, no one has questioned the raw talent, the athleticism, the skill set at six foot eleven. What they have questioned is the heart, the motor, the effort, the energy. You go back to high school, it was a question. You go back to Memphis. Remember, he left midseason, and while it was understandable, Penny Hardaway screwed that up. He played him when he shouldn't have. James Wiseman got a lengthy suspension. There were also a lot of people that were like, wait a second now. Come on. You're a team player. You're going to quit on the team in the middle of the season. What are you doing now? So now we have about a five, six-year track record with James Wiseman. Um, you know, doesn't, you know, kind of has an on-off motor in high school, quits in college, and really has done nothing of consequence in the NBA. And I'll just say this. The Golden State Warriors won the NBA title last week and a few different things. One, first of all, there was an incredible picture of James Wiseman holding the Larry O'Brien trophy as if he was Kobe Bryant, holding it, squeezing it, crying on top of it. And the comments on that picture, whether it was on Twitter or Instagram, I encourage you to find it, are hysterical. But it speaks to the fact that this guy, why are you holding the Larry O'Brien trophy as if you've accomplished something? Why are you taking a picture as if you put in so much blood, sweat, and tears? You rode the, co- the coattails of Steph, you rode the coattails of Draymond, on and on and on and on and on. I don't wish James Wiseman any ill will, but come on now. We're, we're three years into his NBA career, he's played like 20 games, didn't play in college. I think we're getting pretty close to calling this guy a bust. Where Aaron was wrong. The other guy in that draft that I said I believed could end up being a bust in the 2020 NBA draft was the guy who went number one overall, Anthony Edwards. And I, yeah, I was dead wrong. Now, in my defense, if you remember, he wasn't good at, well, he was good at Georgia, but Georgia was terrible. And right before the draft, he drops this very bizarre interview where he says, yeah, you know, I'll be honest, I'm going to go number one or number two, but basketball isn't even my favorite sport. I was always a football guy. I still, I wish I could play football now, but you know, I'm playing basketball. And so forgive me for having questions how dedicated he was to basketball, but you get the point, I was dead wrong. You look at Anthony Edwards, like I just said with Donovan Mitchell, one of the bright young players in the league. He is one of the most fun players in the NBA to watch, played for the Minnesota Timberwolves in year two. While James Wiseman was sitting out, while James Wiseman was doing absolutely nothing, Anthony Edwards was awesome, averaging 21 points per game. He played in, of the Grizzlies, 82 games, he played in 72 of them, also had five five rebounds, four assists, shot 36% from three. And you talk about that next wave of young guys in the league, this guy is part of it. I always knew Anthony Edwards had the skill, the athleticism. I didn't know if he'd put it all together. I certainly didn't think he'd put it all together this quickly. I was dead wrong on him. Where Aaron was right. Let's go, let's stay with that 2020 NBA draft. Was right on James Wiseman, was wrong on Anthony Edwards. So far, so good on LaMelo Ball. And when it comes to LaMelo Ball, I have a little bit of a different relationship with him. I'm sure I've told this story on this podcast a few different times. The first time that I saw LaMelo Ball play basketball, he was in eighth grade playing with Lonzo, who was going into his senior year of high school, and Melo was playing with players that were four years older. Walk into the gym, you see this little short kid in the corner. I was with my girlfriend, my now wife. She was with me. And we kind of pointed and said, oh, look at the cute little kid in the corner playing with his big brother. First, first possession down, Mello catches the ball, pump fake, turn, score. Second possession, pump fake, drive, score. And about the third possession, I turned to my wife and I said, this kid is no freaking joke. And so when it came to LaMelo Ball, there was such a circus around him 
that I kind of just felt like, you know, he, he was kind of unfairly covered it coming into the NBA. Remember, he left high school after two years. He goes overseas. I think it was Lithuania where he ended up. He then plays in Australia for a year. And by the time he got back to the States, there was a question of how good is he? Is he really a team player? Is he this? Is he that? And I said, look, I can't guarantee anything, but I've been watching this kid play against kids that are four years older than him since he was in seventh or eighth grade. He is fearless, and I think he is going to be really good in the NBA. Well, fast forward to 2021, 2022, 20.7 rebounds, seven assists, and made an all-star team at 20 years old. Look, I'm not saying he's going to be the face of the NBA. I'm not saying what I am saying. You talk about young dynamic, exciting players, some of the best players to watch on TV. LaMelo is it. Since the first time I saw him, absolutely fearless, love watching him play, and love to see him evolve. Let's get to a couple other quick ones where Aaron was wrong. Uh, Let's stay in the ball family. I really thought Lonzo was going to be the dude. Now, when he got drafted by the Lakers, I thought it was a little bit weird. If you remember the first press conference, Magic Johnson was the GM at the time, and he says something like, save some records for me, Lonzo. I didn't think he was going to break Magic Johnson's records, but I really did think that he was going to be the face of a major rebuild with the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, whether it was because of his father, whether it was because of the pressure, whether it was because of living in LA, whether it was because of the fact that, of course, LeBron James came in two or three years later and basically cleaned house. It never really worked out. Lonzo, to his credit, has turned into a very nice NBA player. 13 points, five rebounds, five assists per game with Chicago this year, helping them to the NBA playoffs, but it just didn't click. I watched him at UCLA. I was at those games. You cannot describe what it was like in Pauley Pavilion that year that Lonzo was there, unless you were there. It was electric. It was unreal. If you remember, I was actually having dinner with somebody on Wednesday night. We were talking about that season. The year before Lonzo got there, like people think that that whole season with UCLA was overhyped and all that stuff. No. The year before Lonzo got there, UCLA had a losing record. The next year, they were number one in the country at one point, I believe, uh, top 10 all year, and they were the most exciting brand in basketball. So Lonzo, by no means, has been like a huge NBA bust or anything like that, but I thought he was going to be the guy for the Lakers. I thought he was going to elevate them the way that he did UCLA. It never really worked out. Where Aaron was right. So this is one you're just going to have to take my word on, because this goes back to the days before I had a podcast, before I was writing, right when I got out of college. And I will tell you that in the same way that I never understood why Markel Fultz was the number one pick. I also never understood why people thought it was inconceivable that Steph Curry could be a good NBA player. Now, I'll be readily admit, did I think he was going to be an all-time great, multiple-time MVP, four-time NBA champion? I cannot say that I did. But if you go back and you watch stuff from that draft, and remember, that draft is getting a lot of run right now, because if you remember, the Minnesota Timberwolves took two point guards ahead of Steph Curry. The conversation was, uh, well, you can't draft Steph Curry because he's not really a point guard. He's like 6'3", and all he does is shoot threes. And if you watched him at Davidson, that was the most idiotic thing that you could ever imagine hearing, okay? Going back to his time at Davidson, these are some of his college stats from his time at Davidson. His final season, he averaged 28 points, 6 assists on, oh, by the way, 39% three-point shooting. If you actually just watch them, Now, his first year when they made the big NCAA tournament run, he did play off the ball. 
But first of all, he was the, the focal point of every team's scouting report. He still dropped 30 on all of them. But his, his last year, his junior year when he came back, he was the point guard of that team, averaged 30 points per game with six assists per game. Never understood the idea that he couldn't be a point guard. Never understood the idea that despite the fact that he has kind of a different body type, that he couldn't be a productive all-star level NBA player. Again, I never thought he was going to be a superstar. I never thought he was going to be a four-time champ, two-time MVP. But I never understood the idea that he could not be a really good NBA player. Finally, where Aaron was wrong, this is a little bit of a funny one (laughs) to look back on. And kind of you have to be an old-school listener of the Aaron Torres pod. But if you remember after the 2019 college basketball season, uh, Kentucky lost in the Elite Eight to Auburn. And their three guys, P.J. Washington, Tyler Hero, and Keldon Johnson, all decided to go pro. And at the time, I actually really questioned Tyler Hero and Keldon Johnson, specifically Keldon Johnson. Now, to be clear, you guys know my policy on this show. I never say anybody made a wrong decision or a right decision. It's everybody's life. You do what you think is best for you. But I remember talking about Keldon Johnson at the time and sitting there saying, I'll be honest. I don't know what his skill is that translates to the NBA. I remember vividly saying this, running and jumping, dunking and screaming and fist bumping people is not a translatable NBA skill. Yeah, let's fast forward a few years and Keldon Johnson is basically the only bright spot for the San Antonio Spurs right now, won an Olympic gold medal last summer. This year, uh, he averaged 17 points per game for the San Antonio Spurs. So it's a minor one. You'd have to really be an old school listener to even remember me saying it. But where Aaron was wrong, I, Keldon Johnson was one. I was like, I don't know what his skills are. Uh, yeah, apparently when you're six foot seven, super athletic, and you play really hard, good things happen. All right. I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Really fun show. Really fun week. And as always, I so very much appreciate everybody's support. Uh, thank you, guys. We're about to close out the month of June. Numbers are way up from this time last year, and it is not you know, kind of taken for granted. I, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make, I'm bad with my words. You know that. What I'm trying to say is I do appreciate everybody's support and everybody doing what you do to make this show as successful as it is. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. Appreciate your guys' support. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. I'll be back on Monday. New episode. Last week of June, Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Have a good week- weekend, people. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.